Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. The scripture for the sermon comes from Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, through 34, verse 9. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover, with, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive us our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, the children are now dismissed to go to children's church, so that's what's going on. My name is Charlie. I am an elder here at Trinity City Church. Pastor Brian and his family are on vacation this weekend. Uh, let's open in prayer. Father, bring your spirit now among us. Strengthen your church. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your grace and your glory. Renew our hearts, 
Give us peace and rest in the finished work of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, Mackenzie and I are moving to Duluth. We've been looking for a house for, (laughs) well, we decided to move three years ago. We've been actively looking for a house for the past two years. Turns out it's really hard to buy a house these days. And uh, we... We finally got one, so we are very thankful for that. Um, but we also have kind of mixed feelings. We're uh, obviously it, it, we're excited to move there, but we also are really going to miss it here. Uh, we're going to miss this church. We're going to miss all of you. Uh, we actually met here. Uh, it was in a different building at the time, back in 2015. It was, uh, it was Mackenzie's first week here. And we met, and things worked out. <laughs> uh, I have been here a bit longer than that. I've, the church was planted in 2010. I've been here since uh, spring of '09. The first meeting I showed up at, it was I, my two roommates and I went, and it was us and the Lairs, and they, they said... Uh, we were like, oh, who else is coming? We're it. Oh, okay. What are we going to do? Well, let's come up with a mission statement. Oh, okay. We're just starting this thing out. So I've gotten to be involved from the beginning. Uh, both of my roommates have uh, uh, moved on to other things. And so I'm the last one from that original mission statement, other than the layers uh, who are going to be here uh, uh, to, to leave. So, um, yeah, it, it's... I'm going to try really hard not to get emotional during this sermon, um, but I might, and it might be at random times, and it might get awkward. (laughs) So we're moving in about a month, but uh, we will be back to visit um, fairly often, I think, at least more often than Dayton. (laughs) One last jab at Dayton. Uh, The other elders have asked me to finish my term. Uh, As elders, we do five-year terms, and we typically renew. Uh, You as a congregation get to vote on us again uh, every five years. Um, My term is up at the end of January, and so I am going to remain an elder through the end of January, but I will be doing so remotely, whatever that means. So, Pastor Brian asked me to give a farewell sermon. Next week, we'll return to our series on Bible verses that are often taken out of context. Uh, But today, we have an out-of-context sermon. He said I could preach on whatever I wanted. So, that made me think, wow, I get one more sermon. Uh, So, I thought about what do I really want for this church? What's my hope for this church in the coming years and decades? And uh, there are lots of things, but I thought, what's the root thing uh, that all the others flow out of? And two phrases came to mind, both of which are from Paul's letters. And I, I should say right now that I will eventually get to the passage that Joel read but this is one of those sermons where I 
quote from all over the Bible, and then at the end we get to the passage. Um, and, and the hope is that by going all over the Bible, by the time we get to that passage at the end, uh, I will be able to read it with very little comment, and it will mostly speak for itself. Uh, but first, let's start with those two phrases that came to mind uh, from Paul's letters for what my hope is for this church. So first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that uh, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So it's that phrase, and I had learned it uh, from a different translation as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the first thing I want to point out is that flipping on that light switch so that God appears glorious to us, that requires the same creative power that in an instant brought the universe into being out of nothing. It's that same creative power where God said, let light shine out of darkness. That's the type of miracle it takes in order for us to see God as glorious. And second, that God's glory is seen in the face of Jesus. And so my, my hope is that uh, you would have the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Uh, at, there are a few words we're going to need to define as we, we talk about this. They're, they're churchy words, and we can often gloss over them. So here I just mentioned God's glory in the face of Jesus. Uh, so what what does God's glory mean? What is God's glory? Well, first let's talk about his holiness. You sort of need to understand his holiness to understand his glory. The word holy means set apart. God's holiness refers to him being set apart in a number of ways, but the most basic way is that he is creator, we are creatures. He is uncaused. He is... A different category of being than any other being. He is utterly different from us. He needs nothing. He is perfectly satisfied in himself, and all that he does overflows out of a um, self-originated joy and satisfaction. That is his holiness, and often when we speak of holiness, we, we speak of it in moral terms, God's moral perfection is uh, one of the primary ways in which he is set apart from us. He is, because he is without sin, because he knows himself to be the source of all goodness and perfection, um, he always values things in accordance to their actual worth, and there is no sin in him. He is always and effortlessly morally perfect. And in that, he is truly set apart from us. So if that is God's holiness, then God's glory is the communication of his holiness. God's glory is when his holiness is seen. Whenever he uh, does things in creation so that his holiness becomes evident to us and we realize how set apart he is, how different, how perfect that is his glory. So the, the first of those phrases uh, was, 
the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The second one comes from Ephesians chapter 1. This is starting in verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's the phrase I want to point out, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, that's Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And there's a similar phrase, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And Paul talks about uh, uh, that phrase from the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, if, if I were to continue reading the next seven or eight verses, he twice more he says, to the praise of his glory. And he's talking throughout here about God's grace. And there are a lot of ways that we see God's glory, a lot of attributes of his that flow out of his holiness and show us his glory. But the primary one of those is his grace. What sets him apart uh, for, uh, what sets him apart most in our lives, where we can most experience his glory, is his grace. So what do we mean when we say God's grace? It's a word we often use. It's important we know what we're talking about. Grace, uh, in he so the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. In both of those languages, uh, there's one word that's often, it sometimes translated favor, sometimes translated grace. Uh, they have one word for it. And so the question, as this word is being used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is what does God's favor look like? And God's favor looks so utterly unique, there is a, a level of holiness to God's favor that makes it completely different from how we think of how do you earn the favor of a human. Um, God's favor is unearned. And so in English, we talk about God's grace, and we end up having to translate it into two or more different words. Sometimes we say favor, sometimes we say grace, because the English word favor just doesn't, just doesn't cut it. And God's grace, God's favor is completely unearned, and so we could translate it as unearned love or unmerited favor, uh, but it's more than just that. And once upon a time, I was on uh, staff with uh, the Navigators at uh, the University of Minnesota. It's a campus ministry there. And we would go, we actually got to go twice a year to this castle in Colorado where Navigators headquarters is. So if, if you're going to go on staff with a campus ministry, I recommend Navigators because you get to go to a castle. <laughs> and... Uh, when we were there, we'd have our staff training, and there was, this, there was this amazing, just really old 
godly man named Jerry Bridges who would do our morning devotions each day. And that was like our, for all of us on staff, it was our favorite part. Just him doing morning devotions because he had, um, he had been following God so long and he was just so wise and we were just, you know, it was always like kids in their 20s and were, were just hanging on his every word. And I remember him telling us about how we tend to just think of God's grace as his unearned love or unmerited favor. And so what we kind of think of it as, you know, uh, a random person comes to the door and says, hey, I want to, I want to give you a million dollars. I want to... Um, do all these things for you, take care of you for the rest of your life, meet all your needs. Um, just this person out of the blue you ha- who you don't even know, you haven't done anything to deserve this, but they are just going to provide for you in every way you could imagine. The problem is that's not really what God's grace is like. It's more like if you killed someone's son and then they came to you and said all those things. God's grace isn't just unearned love from a place of neutrality. God's grace is unearned love when we have actually earned his vengeance. It's, there's this much deeper level to it. It is, um, it is not unearned love in the sense that it's impersonal. It's unearned love in the sense that it is deeply personal um, and that it is the opposite of what we have earned. And in order to know God's grace like that, in order to understand the depth of it, I think that... um, it's best to think of it in three different components. There are three different things that you have in order for God's grace to really appear glorious. First, you need to have an understanding of God's holiness uh, and his holiness as it relates to us. Um, in order to be in God's presence, uh, we need to be perfect. Like, God is holy in such a way that only perfection can survive in his presence. And second, our sin. Think of our our sin as, just think of it as all the things that we do wrong, um, whether purposefully or by accident, all the ways that we don't value things in accordance to their worth, the ways where we treat people as less worthy than they are. We treat them as uh, less valuable than ourselves. All the ways where we treat God as not the most valuable thing in the universe, not the source of all goodness and love and, and happiness. Um, when, whenever we're, we're not treating things in accordance with their worth, that is sin. And that cannot exist in God's presence. It doesn't go well. It can't survive. And think of sin as all the reasons that heaven wouldn't be perfect if we were there. And then there's God's forgiveness. So we have God's holiness, our sin, and God's forgiveness. 
God's forgiveness uh, is what makes up the difference between His holiness and our sin. It's what makes it possible for us to be in His presence, even though that shouldn't be possible. So somebody might ask, how does Jesus dying on the cross make up that difference? Because it's nice that God forgives us, but how does that actually make it possible for us? Why would heaven be a good place if all of us are there? Because sometimes we're just the worst. Well, there are different ways of talking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We could talk about it in legal terms. We could talk about it in sacrificial terms. But I just described uh, the, the difference between God's holiness and our, our sin in terms of perfection. Uh, so we need to talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross in terms of uh, a transformation to perfection. So how does God's forgiveness perfect us? How does it transform us? When we see God's grace portrayed perfectly in in Jesus willingly dying on the cross on our behalf, and when God flips on the lights so that we get it, so that that appears as glorious to us, when we see that, it transforms us. The seeing is transformative. And it's not that we're ever made perfect on earth. As I said, sometimes we're just the worst. And there are times where the amount of transformation that we do see in the lives of Christians is profoundly unimpressive. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. That doesn't mean that it's not real. It just might think of how bad we'd be without Jesus. But as it says in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When we finally see Jesus' face in a physical form, it will be truly transformative. We will literally see it, we will be fully transformed. But until then, we struggle to know the glory of his grace, and to do so, we need all three of these things. Uh, We need to understand God's holiness, our sin, and God's forgiveness in spite of uh, our sin and his holiness. If we don't have all three, it's not grace. So if you don't have God's holiness, if you just have our sin and God's forgiveness, you have a heavenly grandfather. He's like, oh, that's, that's okay, the parents can deal with it. Um, as Nikki mentioned in the call to worship, pretty much. If you just have uh, our sin and God's holiness, but you don't have forgiveness, then you just have a lot of guilt and shame. You just have, you just know you're in trouble. It's not a good place if you don't know God's forgiveness. And if you only know God's holiness and God's forgiveness, but you don't know the depths of your own sin, then you will just think that you're quite the catch. And God, 
God is lucky to have you on his team. <laughs> but the amount of grace that you actually experience will be the distance between your knowledge of God's holiness and your knowledge of your own sin. If, you, if there's only $10 worth of sin separating you from God's holiness then, and, and you're forgiven for it, then His grace is worth $10. If it's an infinite amount of distance, His grace has infinite worth. And you, if it's an infinite amount of distance and His forgiveness only covers half that, his grace will still be worth a lot, but you'll never have rest. You'll, you'll never feel like His grace gets you all the way to Him. And so we need all three. So my hope for this church, uh, combining those two phrases from, from uh, Paul's letters, is that you would know the glory of God's grace in the face of Jesus. So, of course, neither of those is our passage for today. For the rest of the sermon, I, I want to, well, actually, we'll get there eventually. I want to focus on the book of Exodus, which was written about 1,400 years before Jesus was born. So, even in Israel, four civilizations rose and fell between the time that Exodus was written and Jesus was born. So you might ask, how do we know the glory of God's grace in the face of Jesus in a book written 1,400 years earlier? So let me explain how this works. At the beginning of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt. God brings the Israelites out of slavery and into the desert so that they can worship him at Mount Sinai. God then leads them out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they camp, God, at that pillar of cloud and fire, is physically in their midst. They actually see him. Then we skip to the New Testament. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel, this is uh, John chapter 1, starting in verse 15, John, and this is really confusing, so there's John the Apostle who wrote the letter, and then there's John the Baptist who's being talked about at the beginning of this passage, different Johns. John the Baptist testified concerning him, that's Jesus. John cried out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Notice what he's saying there. No one has ever seen God. That is God the Father. No one physically sees God. But the one and only Son who is himself God, he has made the Father known. He says no one has ever seen God. Well, 
Didn't they see God as a pillar of cloud and fire? Maybe, maybe he's just talking about no one's ever seen God in human form. Well, let's see what else John says. When we get to chapter 12, this is verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And then I'll, I'll skip over the quote to verse 41. Uh, in the part that we skipped, there's a quote from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has a vision of God in all his glory. And he's so glorious that the train of his robe, you know, the, the, uh, the more power you have as a, a king or queen, the longer the train of your robe is. So they need like 30 people to, uh, I guess in like six months when, when Charles becomes king. Um, well, the train of God's robe fills the temple. And this vision of God in Isaiah 6 is one of the highest, uh, most glorious visions anyone has of God in the whole Old Testament. So John quotes from that vision and then says in verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The glory that Isaiah saw when God showed up and when he had a vision of, of this amazing vision of God, uh, that was Jesus. This is what biblical scholars refer to as a pre-incarnation of Christ. So when, when Jesus came and lived his life as a human, that's the incarnation of Christ. Um, when he shows up, whenever God shows up in physical form in the Old Testament, that is a pre-incarnation of Christ. You might still wonder, well, does this apply to Exodus? What about that pillar of cloud and fire? What about what's going on in Exodus? The book of Jude, nobody ever goes to the book of Jude because it's like one chapter long. So in verse 5, there are no chapter numbers because it's one chapter long. Jude says, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. It was Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. It was Jesus who appeared as a burning bush and spoke to Moses. It was Jesus who led them out as a pillar of cloud and fire. It was Jesus who appears in uh, chapter 34 of Exodus uh, uh, to show Moses God's glory. I will note that if you're reading uh, different translations, uh, some translations will say Lord or God instead of Jesus in this verse. Um, some of the earliest manuscripts have Lord or God. Uh, I think Jesus is the best translation. I won't go into the text criticism any more than that. Um, the most difficult, one of the principles of text criticism is that the, uh, the most difficult translation is often the original one. Uh, and Jesus is the most difficult translation. It's more likely that people saw Jesus and they were like, well, that wasn't Jesus, that was God, we're going to change it to God, as they were copying. Then that they saw God and they were like, oh, let's put Jesus in there. Uh, that, that seems less likely. And so uh, I think Jesus is the correct original uh, version here. 
So when you take these three passages together, it shows that when we, when we say things uh, like in, in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or we say things uh, like in Hebrews that there is no mediator between God and man, or, sorry, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, we mean that any physical manifestation of God is mediated through Jesus to us. It's Jesus all through the Old Testament. Um, G John, at the beginning of his gospel, refers to Jesus as the Word. Um, that is, the, the communication of God to creation and the creative power of God that brings creation into being. And Jesus always is that word. All of God's words to us, um, all of God's visions to us are mediated through Jesus. So it's reasonable to look in Exodus when we're talking about knowing the glory of God's grace in the face of Jesus. And for the rest of this sermon, I'll summarize the book of Exodus fairly quickly so that we can see how Moses saw the glory of God's grace. And remember, in order to see God's grace, you need to be aware of God's holiness, your own sin, and God's forgiveness in spite of your sin and his holiness. So, as I said before, Exodus is a story of how God brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the desert so that they can worship him at Mount Sinai. Later on, he leads them to the promised land, but Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle, which is a portable temple so that they can worship God as they travel through the desert and that they can serve him. The theme of Exodus, one way to put it, is it's just the same as the Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. And in there he says it might be, the, I forget the words, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but he gets it. So there are three main scenes in the book of Exodus, and we're mostly just going to focus on those, and again, this will be a quick walk through this fairly long book. The middle scene is the actual Exodus event. This is where uh, God leads the people out of Egypt. They, this is what's in all the movies, right? This is where Moses parts the Red Sea, and then they leave, and they get to Mount Sinai. God appears before them, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, and Moses then puts them on the two tablets of stone. That's the big event in the middle. The other two big events, there's one in the first half of the book, and there's one in the second half of the book. And both of these focus on, uh, they have two things in common. There is a theophany, Theophany is a fancy word that just means a physical manifestation of God. And then God proclaims his name. The, it's important to know that the, in many ways this is a book about God's name. And in, in Hebrew and in a lot of older languages, uh, name and reputation that's kind of all one word. A person's name is bound to their reputation. It's bound to who they are. And the, the Hebrew name 
uh, well, the translation of the Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is these are the names. In all the books of Moses and in many Hebrew books, the name of the book is just the first few words of the book. And those are not arbitrary words. The book is um, started in such a way that those first few words are representative of the book. So Genesis in Hebrew is called in the beginning. Makes sense. Numbers is in the desert. Deuteronomy, which consists of Moses' farewell sermon, is called these are the words. Exodus is called these are the names. The sentence is these are the names of the children of Israel that came up out of Egypt, or that, that went down into Egypt during the time of Joseph, something like that, but you get the idea. Uh, the, so the name of the book is These Are the Names, and then two of these big three scenes are about the name of God, and so we want to focus a lot on the name of God, and there are other places in this book where name, names are very significant. God talks about knowing Moses by name, uh, it's striking that the, the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh, has no name in the book of Exodus. His, his name has been blotted out. Uh, the name that is known by God is Moses, and he, he knows the Israelites by name. So the book starts out, uh, Moses grows up in Egypt, in Pharaoh's household, Although he is an Israelite, there's a backstory, but we don't need that now. Uh, the important thing is that Moses at one point uh, gets angry because the other Israelites are being mistreated, and when he gets angry, he ends up killing an Egyptian, and he flees. He flees to the desert, lives with different people in the land of Midian, and 40 years after he flees, at this point he's 80 years old, uh, we come to Exodus 3. This is the first big scene. Uh, Moses sees a burning bush. God tells him to come close, take off his shoes. It's holy ground. And he tells him he's going to send him to Pharaoh and, lead, and use Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. We come to ver chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, Ehia esher ehia which we typically translate as I am who I am, but it could also be translate I will be who I will be. Um, this, so I am who I am. This is what you are to, the, to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers. And Yahweh in the Hebrew of Moses' day means he causes to be. It's actually, it's not just a, an arbitrary name. It, it, uh, it's the, the causal form of the to be verb, uh, Yahweh. It, it's, 
it's only ever used uh, as God's name in Scripture. He is the one who causes all things to be. And when Moses heard this, he would have acknowledged the meaning of the name. It would have been obvious to him, even though it's not obvious to us. And even though it's, it's not how you would say that in modern Hebrew, or even the Hebrew, uh, uh, <laughs> the version of the Hebrew Bible that we have. The language has been updated, so, uh, but um, in, the Mos- in the language of uh, Moses' day, uh, Yahweh would have meant he causes to be. So God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So the name Yahweh, it is a statement of God's self-existence. It is a statement of him as the causer of all things. This is a statement of his holiness. So then Moses complains that he can't speak well. Moses complains, I don't want to go speak to Pharaoh. I'm just not a good speaker. Make someone else do it. This is sin. He does not trust God. So then in chapter 4, verse 11, Yahweh said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who causes them to be deaf or mute? Who causes them to have sight? Or makes them blind? Is it not I he causes to be? Moses still whines, this is sin. But God uses him anyway. He sends Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh. We get all the ten plagues. We know what, how most of the plagues correspond to specific Egyptian gods. What Moses is doing is he's saying, you have a frog god. You think that god causes frogs. No, it is Yahweh. He causes all things to be. Here's a bunch of frogs. You think that Ra is the god of the sun who causes light. No, it is Yahweh. Here's darkness. You think that the Pharaoh is divine and his son is divine. Israel has been called God's son. He has claimed them and he will take all of your firstborn sons. In the ten plagues, Yahweh essentially slays the Egyptian pantheon, showing that there are no small gods who control the individual areas of life, but that Yahweh causes all things in all areas of life. There, is no, there are no bounds to his domain. After the death of the firstborn sons, Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Israelites go. We have the Exodus. Eventually, they come to Mount Sinai. No one is allowed to approach because of God's holiness. God gives them the Ten Commandments. This is the big central event. And in here, this is Exodus 20, verse 2. God says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He does that before he gives the Ten Commandments. This is the order of salvation, love before obedience. God saves them first. He makes them a people. 
Then he gives them the commandments. They physically hear him give the commandments. They're terrified. So Moses goes up the mountain to receive the rest of the laws out of earshot because they don't want to be destroyed by being too close to God. They understand his holiness at least that much. Moses receives the law up on the mountain for 40 days and a lot of instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Very detailed. If you wanted to have a class on biblical architecture, it could be a fairly long class. While he's up there, the Israelites, um, near the end of the 40 days, they decide Moses probably isn't coming back and they should worship Yahweh their own way. And so Moses, the way that they know to worship is exactly what God told them not to do. It's to make an idol. They make two golden calves and Aaron says to them, Behold, your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're trying to worship Yahweh, but they're not doing it the right way. They don't understand that he's different, that you don't make a golden calf to worship him. When Moses comes down, he's furious. He smashes the tablets. He grinds uh, the, the golden calves into dust. He spreads it over the water. He makes the Israelites drink it. And then he has uh, those who uh, are with God draw their swords and kill those who had made the golden calves. This is a picture of the cost of sin, the cost of rebellion against God, of not treating God as unique, as holy. Then they repent and Moses goes to intercede for them up on the mountain. God says he can't come with them to the promised land. If he did, they would get destroyed, but he will let them go up to the promised land on their own. He'll stay back so that they don't get destroyed by being in his presence. And now we come to the passage that Joel read at the, the start of this. And we're almost at the end here. I'm sorry, I wrote way too long of a sermon. I mentioned before that it's the same word, grace and favor in Hebrew. And the NIV, which uh, we normally read from, also translates it as pleased quite a few times. I'm just going to translate it as grace every time as I read through this passage once more. I will also read God's name as Yahweh, uh, where the NIV would just translate it as Lord in all caps. Moses said to Yahweh, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. And you have found grace with me. If I have found grace in your eyes, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find grace with you. Note that there. If, if I have found grace, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find grace. It begins and ends with God's grace and in the middle is his revelation to us. Moses continues, remember that this nation is your people. Yahweh replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that I and your people have found grace in your eyes unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. 
because you have found grace in my eyes, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. After all this talk of grace, at this point Moses says, Now show me your glory. He saw what the Israelites had done. He was as angry as he should have been. He understood the depths of the sin He went to plead before God. God gave him sheer grace. And at that point, Moses said, show me your glory. I just want to see more. God's glory is primarily seen in the glory of his grace. Continuing verse 19. And Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Note that this follows the same formula as I am who I am. When God says this, when he says, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom, etc., he's not saying, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And by the way, Here's another statement that I'm gracious to whoever I want to be. No, he's saying that is part of his name. And you can tell this because later on, when he proclaims his name, he adds to it that he is gracious and merciful. That's part of the proclamation of his name. At the big scene in the first half of the book, we get God identifying his holiness um, He's identifying it ontologically. He's identifying his holiness with regard to his basic being, that he is not defined by anything in creation, but he is utterly separate from it and above it. At the same time, like an author of a book, he is the one who causes all things to be. So relative to creation, he is Yahweh, but in his basic existence, he is who he is. In the second half of the book, he again proclaims the name Yahweh, that he is the, the author of creation. But he adds to it now a proclamation of who he is, a fancy theological word, because I know you guys, a lot of you guys like fancy words. The fancy theological word for this is that he proclaims his name soteriologically with regard to salvation. He does not love people because they are lovable, but he does not love people because of any particular attribute of their own, but because he is loving. He is gracious because he is gracious, not because of anything about us. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then Yahweh said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai, 
Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as Yahweh had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That is probably talking about the natural effects, the natural generational effects of sin rather than um, God unfairly punishing children for what their parents have done. Continuing, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found grace in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is how Moses knew God's holiness. He knew that God alone was the causer of all things. He knew his own sin and the sin of his people was inexcusable, and yet he also knew that his relationship with God was not lessened because of it. God himself covered Moses with his hand. Christ interceded for Moses, and through Moses showed the Israelites that their only hope was that God would provide an intercessor. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. The Israelites were terrified and he had to put a veil over his face. His face was glowing because he had seen the glory of God's grace as Jesus passed before him. I'll close as Paul expounds on this um, in, verse, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with this surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil cover their, covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord Jesus, who is the Spirit.